0: Hello and welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Myelopathy.org
1: where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy.
0: I'm Human Sadler, a
1: person with DCM and a founder of Myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters
0: by Myelopathy.org.
1: So welcome to the podcast today. Today's theme is education and why patient education in particular we think is so important for improving outcomes. We'll be joined by spine surgeon Dr. Rory Murphy, also an ambassador for myelope.org, who's been working with famed medical illustrator Peter Lawrence to really try and produce some material that can help his patients understand the condition. And we'll also hear about Myelopathy.org's new project, DCM Coins, funded by the Evelyn Trust in Cambridge, which is looking to produce a standard framework to help professionals communicate information about the condition to patients. And we'll hear from Rishi Umaira, a clinical researcher at the University of Cambridge, who's been taking on the first step of that process, looking at all the different resources out there and trying to understand what they are sharing about myelopathy. So you and I think we'll both agree this is a really important topic area and perhaps where Myelopathy.org all started.
0: Yeah, I think it's six years on, but it only feels like yesterday. At the time, I just had my diagnosis of myelopathy and I remember thinking either I can just sit here and let it consume me or I could make a difference. As the saying goes, knowledge is power. And that was the key driving force behind me setting up the Facebook community page. Its sole purpose was really to educate and raise awareness of myopathy. I think it makes it so much easier for people to deal with a diagnosis when they have some background knowledge into what they're actually dealing with.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And that was really where I think Mark's vision also came in trying to produce a a website in myelopathy.org that could share some information because at the time, six years ago, if you put this condition into Google, All that came out was information about canine myelopathy, the equivalent condition in dogs.
0: Yes, great for a vet or a dog owner, but not very helpful for a person with myelopathy.
1: And these are the same challenges that were faced by our first guest today, Dr. Rory Murphy. Originally from Ireland, now a spine surgeon at the Barrow Neurological Institute, the largest dedicated hospital for neurological disease in the world. And he's been working alongside illustrator Peter Lawrence to produce some material that can really help his patients Get to grips with the condition and I started by asking him his perspectives on why education in DCM care is so important.
2: When I started practice here I noticed that you know educating a patient is incredibly important and trying to explain the difference between myelopathy, radiculopathy and combined myeloridiculopathy was very challenging. Um, And without understanding the condition and without a person understanding what's happening, it's very hard for them to make good treatment decisions and to fully be part of, of their care and their plan of care and ultimately get better. We interviewed the MRI with every person in my clinic. I could explain the narrowing around the spinal cord. Sometimes I could show the swelling or the edema in the spinal cord with the white changes on the T2 MRI. A lot of people had an issue with understanding how the degenerative change or the wear and tear in their neck and in their spine, in their neck, was causing problems with their hands and legs and other symptoms, including uh, bowel and bladder symptoms. That at sometimes reviewing imaging with people and showing people their imaging was only going so far, and looking at other resources, you know, seeing medical uh, seeing medical illustrations really helps uh, people understand the difference between myelopathy, radiculopathy and from there we encountered some other um, ways to improve. So how do we incorporate the, the fact that myelopathy is a chronic gradual worsening, um, how it's affected by movement and how the cord is gradually squeezed and compressed and worsen with gradual movement and how that worsens symptoms. And that's where I reached out to Peter, uh, who's in our group, uh, for help. People only start to understand it when I show them Peter's illustrations of what actually that really meant. Peter was able to add the movement of the spinal cord with flexion extension and how the spinal cord basically gets gradually compressed as it moves over and back across the narrow segments.
1: So perhaps that's a good point to bring in, Peter. I don't know if you can trace your thoughts back, Peter, to when Rory came to you with this problem. I mean, how do you approach trying to provide an illustration to sort of cover this knowledge gap? So that's a problem um, we actually get pretty
3: regularly. It's um, when patients are looking at, uh, you know, a diagnostic image, they can't make heads or tails of what they're looking at. But, um, you know, that's the power of a 2D illustration can really clarify what you're actually looking at, but just being able to do something simple like didactically colour certain structures so they're able to distinguish uh, the spinal cord from the CSF and, and other surrounding areas. Um, can really just lay out a map and bring a lot of clarity to what they're looking at.
1: And so what were the sort of pieces of the puzzle that you needed to understand from Rory when you were starting to produce that illustration? After Rory started talking about how
3: uh, movement was such an important um, aspect of the concept he was trying to portray, we we decided that a 2D animation would actually lend itself uh, quite well. And as uh, Rory was explaining, you know, for example, in the animation, we have a, a patient with cervical myopathy that's seen um, uh, extending and flexing the neck and just having a image that corresponds with those movements and showing what's actually happening or potentially could happen to the spinal cord. Seeing those visuals uh, move um, as simple as that is, I, I think, it, makes a connection for the patient.
2: The one thing I will say is the one challenge we have is there's so many different ways that myelopathy can be caused. So um, whether it's uh, OPLL or standard uh, degenerative change or large disc herniation, it's very hard to show all the different scenarios that can cause uh, cervical myelopathy. So that is one challenge we have, um, trying to make a illustration or a model that gives a general
1: appreciation for what's happening. I think that's a really interesting point, because as you say, it's not just the different pathologies, but the fact that it can affect different levels of the spine. And one of the things I was struck by the animations is, a, is the way Peter's really tried to craft all of those different things into one one viewpoint of the, um, of the spine, which I think is quite elegant, but must have been quite difficult to try and bring that all together, Peter.
3: Yeah, it is. But just repeating that motif throughout the illustration, we're hoping the, the patient is able to conceptualize the spinal cord where, where the issues are actually occurring.
1: And have you had a chance to use this now in practice, Rory? Has this changed how you, how you approach sort of breaking a diagnosis or explaining the condition?
2: Yes, um, I've, from the very first uh, iteration. So what I generally do is, after seeing and talking with a person and getting their symptoms, we then do the physical exam. And then after I've reviewed the MRIs with everyone, I will then switch to the video and show how the video illustrates the spinal cord compression. And usually there's a back and forth there because people ask me, well, what's this? What's this? Is that that? You know, and then I'll show the video. It'll reinforce what we discussed on the MRI and then we'll go back to the
1: MRI. And I was, um, on a symposium with one in the, one of the NAS conferences and one of the uh, other speakers talked about this challenge he faced, this huge gap that one has to, to bridge with somebody facing a diagnosis of myelopathy and the time that can take. And he talked about this phenomenon of, of clinic crashing, this idea that suddenly you're, you're absorbed in this process of trying to bridge what is often a very large gap. And I can imagine that illustration can really cut through that idea that, you know, a picture can tell a thousand words. Is that the kind of feedback that you're getting? I believe our patients so
2: far have said that it makes it far clearer and easier to understand. And the fact that we can then send the video with the family uh, so they can look at it at home, and also we give them printouts so they can discuss it when they're going home and just reinforce it further. One thing we need to do is generally incorporate the AO spying guidelines. Um, So we discuss the person's symptoms, their goals, their objectives, their imaging, And then I would go through the modified uh, Japanese Orthopaedic Association scale. We go through that together after we finish the imaging. Get their score. And then we say whether we think that we have a situation where we're working with mild, moderate or severe myelopathy. And then we try and figure out our goals for what we want to do next. So what I'd like to do is, as we develop our illustrations further, incorporate the AO uh, consensus guidelines on treatment. So that, that could be part of the video too, so we can have what the AO recommends for mild symptoms, maybe potential observation uh, with close follow-up versus moderate and severe symptoms.
1: That'd be really useful, certainly, to, to really illustrate those those next steps, uh, because I think one of the challenges, particularly with the the mild arm of those guidelines, is it's a really a little bit uncharted, isn't it? There's a lot of reliance on the individual to be self-aware and self-conscious of perhaps when they need to come back and see you.
2: Which is very true. For a patient with mild myelopathy who understands their disease and lives close by, I think it's observations, uh, it's perfect. So I had an engineer in my clinic yesterday who's quite active and plays a lot of sports and he understood everything, we went through the video, He went through. we went through the guidelines, he's used to technical writing, so the AO spine guidelines, they are reasonably technical, they're not the easiest thing to read. Um, but he understood them, and we're going to watch him with a follow up in six months. But for other people, without uh, maybe who live further away, um, if they if their understanding of the challenge isn't as good, observation is tougher.
1: I wanted to come back to one of the things that you touched on at the beginning, Roy, which is not that just the the education gap exists with the perhaps the patients and and, and their their close family, but also with non specialist professionals. Is this something that you've been able to use perhaps? increasing the awareness of the condition amongst colleagues as well or
2: yes um generally um it's it's part of the continuous process most people know there's something wrong they have numbness and tingling in their hands maybe neck pain they will be able to put into words one or two of the symptoms and then go to their primary care physician or their gp hopefully get an mri of their neck at that stage and generally get referred to me what I've noticed a lot now is with the way technology is changing, most people have access to their radiology reports, so they're able to read the radiology reports. And unfortunately, the way the radiology reports are written, um, they are not accessible to anyone, um, whether it's a, uh, someone who works in medicine or a person who has the disease. So people read these terms like uh, spondylosis, um, stenosis, neuroframal stenosis, and actually it confuses the picture. So people say, look, I've got neuropharminal stenosis between C4 and C5. Is that the main issue? No. No, the main issue is the narrowing around your spinal cord and the spinal cord being pinched. So taking a step back from the radiology reports, which people have access to online, I think is very important. And uh, uh, putting it back into uh, plain language uh, that everyone can understand, whether it's a medical uh, practitioner or someone uh, who has the... The disease.
1: I just want to come back to to Peter because I'm aware more broadly you've done a lot of illustrating for a professional audience whether your approach to illustrations differs depending on you know whether you are going after that professional audience as opposed to the patient groups.
3: Yeah yeah it it does quite a bit Um, I mean that's actually more the uh, usual project for me you do have to simplify the the illustration uh, quite a bit when it's for a lay audience. My background was in fine art and I I always had a penchant for making things as detailed as possible. So um, trying to, to cut back and uh, cut out the, the, the non-essential and really focus the story to make it as uh, clear as possible was a bit of a challenge initially, but I uh, won uh, that through working with Dr. Murphy. I think we were able to come up with a style that was that uh, was very simple and effective.
2: But not oversimplified. The one thing I really appreciate about uh, the uh, illustrations are that they are anatomically correct and uh, accurate uh, but without adding detail that's not required
1: yeah i think that's my experience as well i think to oversimplify too far can often just create confusion i find it very helpful because i want to be able to show uh, peter's illustrations next to the
2: mri uh, the patient's mri and because they are both
1: anatomically correct it's easier for the patient to visualize what's happening and then just perhaps then, Peter, on the nuts and bolts thing, because I know I've seen from your Instagram often there's, there's a few shots of you looking at actual the operating theatre itself. I mean, how do you go about creating these images? What's the sort of starting point?
3: Well, it's a, it's a real luxury being a medical illustrator at Barrow. There's just a tremendous amount of resources at my disposal. I'll frequently um, collaborate with, uh, particularly the medical uh, animators who will actually create very sophisticated 3D models which have been sculpted from 3D patient data. We also have like a, a full archive of several decades of illustrations, so I'll often pull up pre-existing artwork and modify it for projects. And as you said, I do occasionally get to observe a surgery directly in the operating room um, if, the, if the author feels like it would be beneficial to understanding this, the process.
1: I wanted to ask you how you transitioned from fine art into medical illustration. It sounds like quite a, a change of direction.
3: Right, right. Well, it, it's funny. I, I had always had an interest in in science. Um, in fact, I was just uh, you know a weird kid in art school, and I was actually painting surgical procedures before I realized that medical illustra- illustration was a profession at all. <laughs> so I was doing large, hyper-realistic oil paintings of various surgical procedures, and um, one of my professors said, uh, you know, have you considered a career in medical illustration? And um, it's a very niche profession here. There's there's only three accredited graduate programs in medical illustration in the United States. And uh, so I had I had not heard of it until that point. Um, but, uh, I you know, I knew immediately it was the, the perfect combination of my interest of art and science. And so, uh, yeah, it was actually, a, um, you know, just one of those weird little doors that was actually perfect for me uh, that opened up.
1: And, and you must have seen a quite a trans- an evolution in how you approach the illustration from, you know, Paintbrushes and oil paintings to what presumably now is very technology driven.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. I've I've always loved drawing and painting and any sort of traditional media. Um, the transition to digital painting was actually a little bit uh, difficult for me, um, namely because I started out with a, a drawing tablet, um, and so seeing your your brushstrokes appear on the screen and your hand is drawing on a table in front of you, there's a there's a weird disconnect. Um, but as technology has evolved. Um, you know, and I, I work now on uh, something called a Cintiq, which is a large monitor, and there's hardly any input lag with this, when the stylus touches the screen, and so it feels like I'm sitting at an actual, you know, drafting table or a, or a canvas. Um, so it's very intuitive and, um, you know, I'm very thankful that technology has gotten to that point.
0: What well, I tend to find when I'm doing work for Ben or formalopathy.org, uh, and he sends me a design. Do you sort of start it and then do you get that sort of block I leave that and i go back to it or so is it
3: is the is the project sort of free flowing with you yeah there's a there's uh, several projects we typically have on our plate at a time, and um we'll sort of uh you know pivot from one to the other uh typically depending on timeline and when the authors need them within the projects themselves. Uh, Working at, at, at Barrow is pretty great because a lot of the authors are excited to be working with us just to have visuals for their research. And so they they frequently, um, as Dr. Murphy does, makes time to visit the department directly. And so having that direct collaboration helps facilitate um, you know really good uh, illustrations. So um, there's always a back and forth throughout that process. So we have our initial meeting. Uh, often I'll, I'll kind of on the fly create sort of concept sketches uh, just to let them know them how, how them visually um, thinking about this project. Uh, after the meeting, I'll draft up concept sketches, or i um, sorry, I'll draft up preliminary sketches, which I'll send to the authors for their approval. And then once those are approved, uh, that's when I start rendering the images. It does seem that as the medical illustration has evolved with technology over the years, I have I've a lot of colleagues that have specialized in, uh, you know, 3D animation or, or even virtual reality or augmented reality, but people do seem to respond to more traditional 2D illustrations, a lot of times there's something about the, the hand-drawn component that I think that makes it more aesthetically compelling, uh, which is important when you're trying to disseminate information about a particular topic and people are responding and engaging with it online.
1: So Rory, you've mentioned a little bit about this, but where do you think the, the next gaps are in terms of educating patients? Where do you want wants Peter's illustrations and your resource to go next?
2: Uh, the next steps will be adding inserts into the video showing people with physical findings of myelopathy, um, and then adding in the in a, in a simplified manner the the recommendations of our um, surgical societies and how to treat um, different levels of cervical myelopathy, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe, because that's another very difficult. Um, thing to explain to people. Um, so when someone comes into the, through, through the uh, emergency department to the hospital, because they've had a severe fall uh, from their myelopathy, um, to the person who comes into your clinic with early symptoms, with numbness and tingling in the hands, and maybe some difficulty with fine motor t- tasks in the hands, it's very hard to join the start of the patient journey or the start of the disease journey with how uh, severe myelopathy can get in the future. So how, how can we show that to people? So we can say, look, right now you have early symptoms. Uh, here's a video representation, and here's some diagrams showing early symptoms. And then s- sometimes the disease will progress to severe myelopathy. This is what severe myelopathy looks like. If you start getting any of these symptoms, you know we need to basically operate straight away. Um, it's very hard to explain to someone at one part of their um, disease journey what it could get to be in the future with or
1: without surgery. I think that's really true. And I think for a condition, we have this great issue that, you know, if someone passes someone with myelopathy on the street, often they'd be totally oblivious that a, that, that person has any kind of disability at all. You know, they look look very normal. They can do sitting there perhaps or just or just standing. And I think that lack of visual um, indication that there's a problem is a real issue for the awareness of the condition and, and people being receptive to to the fact that it's out there and it's important. But you also touched on that point that, you know, you're trying to tell somebody to go through a major operation, which has some risks when actually at the moment they have a reasonable degree of function perhaps. And, um, you know, that what, what could progress, what could happen without that, I think is a, is something that, that, that these sorts of challenges are really what illustration can speak to so well.
2: And, um, a lot of people will come in and they may hear very, um, Concerning stories from uh, people who refer them saying, you know, if you don't come in straight away, you might get a spinal cord injury, you might get paralysed, you know, trying to explain that that risk is quite low.
0: And I think that'd be really fundamental to get that important message across, but not not trying to scare the living dealers out of them at the same time.
2: We are working on um, Spanish translations as we speak, um, but we will also need help with um, putting it into other languages.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important because there is a lack of information out there.
2: How's your Welsh? Will you edgy you the Welsh version, Ewan?
0: Yeah, I could help you out there. <laughs> Certainly.
1: So what were your perspectives on listening to Rory and Peter's interview, Ewan?
0: From the perspective of a person with DCM, get my head around the medical jargon and coming into terms with the diagnosis, probably the hardest part so what rory and peter have developed here but producing these fantastic illustrations and animations it's a great way for a newly diagnosed person to have a better understanding of melopathy minus the medical jargon overload if anybody wants to check out peter's awesome illustrations then have a look at his instagram account it's peter m lawrence his work is outstanding
1: i would certainly recommend taking a look at peter's instagram I mean, after all, they do say pictures tell a thousand words. And I think, you know, when you're facing a diagnosis and all of those potential implications, you go quite numb and you you really want the absolute minimum amount of information just to cut through, don't you? So anything that can reduce that information overload, a simple illustration, I think can clearly be so effective.
0: Yes, definitely. It's knowing what you're dealing with makes it much easier to prepare yourself for treatment and importantly highlights the do's and don'ts because the last thing you want is someone making the symptoms worse by not making lifestyle changes that
1: reduces the risk of it getting worse. That's really interesting I think that picks up some of the themes that come through from Rory and potentially also how my perspectives also evolved. You know, when we started MyLoft.org I was really trying to provide some information to help people understand what they were going through but I've started to realise that you know upskilling patients, making them condition experts, I think can really directly affect their individual outcomes. And I think it goes back to something we covered in one of our previous podcast episodes with Dr. James Milligan, who's a primary care physician from Canada with a special interest in, in spinal cord injury. And he talks about the importance of, of the patients themselves being the experts. They bring the knowledge. And it's that knowledge that they bring in with a bit of support from medical professional can really make the right decisions for that individual. And I think for a chronic condition like DCM, that's going to be crucial. You know, it's a condition that involves many different healthcare professionals who may or may not know much about DCM. And secondly, it's a condition where decisions aren't so black and white. You know, they need to be individualised to that individual circumstances. I can remember my first neurosurgeon
0: appointment, trying my hardest to make heads or tails of the MRI imaging and the medical jargon. I think I walked out of my first appointment with with nothing. The information I'd gathered was by googling my MRI report, and that is no good in some ways because the decision has already been made. So yes, I really think patient education is definitely key.
1: And this is something Marlopi.org is now trying to take forward in a much more structured way, to see if we can establish one of the key phases in someone's care that information needs to be provided and what specifically should be the information provided. This is a project we're calling DCM Coins or DCM Core Information Sets, for which we've been awarded some funding by the Evelyn Trust in Cambridge. And our next guest, Rishi Umeria, is a student at the University of Cambridge Medical School who's been undertaking the first step in this process, which is really to consolidate and analyze all of the current resources providing information about DCM to understand what information has been provided and at what time points they are being provided.
4: So the whole point of this project was to look from the perspective of individuals with DCM and healthcare professionals to see when they're out there searching for information, what can they find about this condition? And what we wanted to do was take an evidence-based approach in terms of thinking about the health information seeking behaviour of people in terms of where are we going to look. So a couple of helpful papers that we looked at to um, find out where people are looking for information guided us towards looking at areas on the internet like videos, organisation websites, health education websites and then also in addition to that off of the internet, we had hospital patient information leaflets in a hospital setting. And then in addition to that, scientific literature as well, which is especially important for the professionals that are looking after people with DCM.
1: And that's sort of how you structured, you know, what resources you were going to try and take a look at, which are probably relevant here. Um, but how do you approach looking into those individual resources and, and what did you find?
4: The important thing was being able to have a structured approach to searching these areas that we'd identified in a way that if someone else was going to do the search afterwards, would they be able to replicate the findings that we had done? And so in order to do that, we wanted to make sure that there was a clear sort of set of instructions that we were going through when we were searching all of these areas. If we go through five areas one by one, starting with number one, the scientific literature. In our search in this area, we used some high sensitivity search filters for DCM when looking at two key databases, Embase and Medline, looking to see for educational content. So within the scientific literature, we looked at two particular areas, one of which was narrative reviews, aiming to provide educational content to professionals. And then the second area of which was systematic reviews, Which were focusing on answering key clinical questions that can identify information of relevance for healthcare professionals as well. And so we set out sort of specific criteria when we're looking within the scientific literature so that we would be looking in particular for information specifically on degenerative cervical myelopathy, sometimes formally known as cervical spondylotic myelopathy. And we used. A set of inclusion and exclusion criteria so we only looked at things that were specifically on deep degenerative cervical myelopathy or DCM and anything that was reporting on DCM plus other things we left out and so that was our search for the scientific literature the first area the second area that we searched was videos as well and here we were looking for videos from the search engine google because we thought that that would provide a good breadth of videos in terms of any potential educational content on DCM and then the third area that we looked at was health organisations. So this was a global list of organisations from a database called EnvirusScan that we were looking at. This included organisations like charities, hospitals, universities and so on and this project EnvirusScan was looking to identify organisations that are either already doing work related to DCM or those that have got the potential to do work related to DCM. And we were searching the websites of these organisations to see if there was any educational content on them. And then the fourth area that we looked at, health education websites, was to see what are the most sort of popular health education sites that patients are visiting, and see have they got any dedicated web pages on DCM. So, We used a website called Alexa, which identified the 50 most popular health education websites across the globe and see whether these most popular sites had any information relating to DCM. And then the fifth area that we looked at was within hospitals themselves, patient information leaflets. We collected a list of all of the hospitals in the United Kingdom that were providers of complex spinal surgery. And we visited these hospital websites to see if they have any leaflets available on the website, which are specifically dedicated to DCM.
1: What did your search results return and what's out
4: there? From our search process, we identified over 2,000 resources. So we actually identified 2,674 resources to begin with as part of our search. And then we finally, through sort of working through these sources of information, seeing what matched our criteria to find out information relating to DCM, we whittled it down to 150 sources of information that we could find. And if I give you a breakdown of that, of those 150 resources that we identified on DCM, 115 were from the scientific literature, 28 were from videos, five were from organizations, two from health education websites, and zero from hospital patient information leaflets. And so what we noticed was the majority of information that we found was from the scientific literature and this was information that was largely targeted at healthcare professionals. Once we'd identified these 150 uh, resources, our next goal or the next stage within the research project was then to categorize all of the nuggets of information within these sources into domains, and then further down, divide them into subdomains as well. And that provided us with a clear sort of categorization system so that we could say, out of all of these 150 resources, how many, for example, are providing us with information on one area or another area. So there were seven domains that we had designed to categorize the information into. And the first domain was all looking about the causes of DCM and kind of what do we know about how many, the level of uh, DCM within the population. So we identified 33 resources, domain two, we were looking at the presentation of the condition, what signs and symptoms are there and how does the disease present itself and develop through its natural course. We identified 43 out of the 150 resources provided information on this. And then the next one, domain three, diagnosis, monitoring and progression. This was all about identifying and finding out those individuals with DCM and tracking them as their disease progresses, we identified 34 out of the 150 resources on this. The fourth domain that we looked at was surgical management. And this was the domain where we had 100 out of 150 resources commenting on this area. This was the most highly covered domain with two thirds of all resources giving information on this topic. The next area that we looked at, domain five, was non-surgical management. We found 16 out of 150 resources commenting or providing information on non-surgical management. The next domain we looked at was domain six, predicting outcomes, in which we identified 27 out of 150 resources commenting on this domain. And then the final domain, Domain 7, was on assessing research and developing guidelines from all of the work that's going on. We identified 10 out of 150 resources commenting on this domain. But overall, from those 150 resources that we found from the search, the key area is by far looking at surgical management of the condition. And the majority of records, 83%, designed for a target audience of healthcare professionals compared to 11% aimed at the general public with the remaining 3% combined target audience of both the general public and healthcare professionals.
1: It's interesting to listen to those results for a number of reasons, but I guess having put together myelopathy.org as an information resource, it doesn't surprise me that there's a lack of information dedicated for people living with the condition. But it is quite powerful to hear just how little there is out there alternatively. you know, it it's quite striking that the UK footprint of spinal surgery centres, you couldn't find any dedicated resources to this condition.
4: We found 40 spinal centres in the UK that provide complex spinal surgery. And none of these 40 centres or hospitals had any leaflets on their websites that were dedicated to DCM. However, what we did pick up from our search was that 10 out of the 40 hospitals that were identified as providing complex surgery did provide leaflets containing some information relating to DCM. However, these leaflets were not dedicated DCM resources, but instead they were resources that were for more generally or cervical spinal surgery.
1: So what are the sort of next steps for this this project?
4: We've completed the phase one of developing a core information set and we would now need to move on to phases two and three. So the two key stakeholder groups that we're referring to here are the people living with DCM and then the healthcare professionals that are involved in treating DCM. And we would want to ask them to begin with, uh, to complete phase one, are there any other pieces of information that we haven't yet identified from this project that you think is relevant to DCM, and then phase two would then be about putting these um, all of the information that we have identified back to the stakeholders and asking them what the key pieces of information are from all of the information that is currently out there. The final sets that we would want to develop may be used in key care transition points for people with DCM, for example, using a core information set for when someone is initially diagnosed with DCM, or for example, using a core information set when deciding whether or not to go ahead with surgical procedures for DCM.
0: Wow, it's just staggering that there remains so little information out there, but unfortunately not surprising. Big thank you to Rishi for putting this together. It looks like myelopathy.org remains the only dedicated charity and resource for this condition. Hopefully, with this outline project, we can really improve what we offer and make a difference around the world.
1: I think this project's got got great potential. It's a a concept which has really been developed around surgical consent, but I think we can show here the implications of it across a whole condition. And um, hopefully just that very simple tool of providing the right information at the right time could could transform people's lives. So what's up next month? Well we're turning our attention to nutrition and we're talking to surgeon scientist Dr. Arya Nuri and clinical researcher Celine Parthasarath. So all that remains to be said is a big thank you to our guests Rory Murphy, Peter Lawrence, Rishi Ameria. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and supported by a grant from the National Institute of Health Research, United Kingdom, although the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NIHR, the NHS, or the Department of Health. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's lots of information and support to be found at myelopathy.org, But if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye.